Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lim. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the ISLC. I'm Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University, and in this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, I have the privilege of discussing targeted therapies with one of the global leaders in drug development, Dr. Vivek Subaya. Dr. Subaya is the Chief of Early Phase Drug Development for Sarah Cannon Research Institute. He was previously the Executive Director of Medical Oncology Research for the MD Anderson Cancer Network where he played a pivotal role in the development and ultimate approval for several agents that we consider essential in the lung cancer world today. Vivek, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Dear Stephen, thank you so much for having me over. It's a pleasure and honor to talk to you all. Thank you. And I'll start by congratulating you on your position with Sarah Cannon. You know, you spent many years building that early drug development program at MD Anderson in Houston. Now you have this new position with Sarah Cannon. Can you tell us a little bit about what your current position entails? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Steve, for asking me that. You know, again, it's been a pleasure and honor to move to uh, Sarah Cannon a Research Institute after nearly 15 years at MD Anderson with several leadership roles, including executive director, as you mentioned, um, clinical director for the early phase drug development program. So Sarah Cannon Research Institute, as you know, is one of the world's leading oncology research organizations conducting clinical trials and I recently joined the organization as a chief early phase drug development. In this role, I will oversee Sarah Cannon Research Unit's nine drug development units and also lead the expansion of early phase capabilities and programs across the organization's growing research network of more than 1,300 physicians at more than 250 locations in 24 states. Again, you can see the length and breadth of the operations of this uh, research institute and the research network. And I really look forward to see how we can make an impact in the drug development space across the US. The scale really is really is staggering, Vivek. And to start here, we've got listeners uh, at all levels from experienced physicians to trainees and patients. You've done a tremendous amount of work in drug development, especially in the field of targeted therapy. So maybe to get us started, Vivek, can you explain to our listeners, how would you define targeted therapy? What is that? How has it changed our approach to treating not just lung cancer, but cancer in general? Targeted therapy is a type of cancer treatment that uses drugs or other substances to precisely identify and attack certain types of cancer cells. A targeted therapy can be used by itself or in fact, in combinations with other treatments, such as traditional or standard chemotherapy surgery or radiation therapy. Again, you know, if the patient and their family members uh, treatment plan is including a targeted therapy, they need to know how it works and what to expect uh, so that they can prepare for the treatment and make informed decisions about the care. As you know, lung cancer, you know, has been uh, become the poster child for precision oncology. And there are several other rare cancers that are also being benefited by precision oncology or targeted therapy. This targeted therapy and the paradigm has been enabled in the last decade by the advent of what we call as next generation sequencing. It's nothing but you know tumor profiling or you know cancer tumor tissue molecular profiling. So 
20 to 25 years ago, they said we cannot sequence a human genome. Massive sequencing efforts have now mapped the human genome. The cost of sequencing uh, of the human genome have dropped in a breathtaking manner from $3 billion over a decade ago to about $1,000 a day. Hundreds of actionable genes have been discovered and thousands of new drugs with novel mechanism of action that include targeted therapies, what we call as gene-targeted therapy, and agents that arm the immune system are being identified so that we can match patients to these targeted therapies. Ultimately, we need to move on to the paradigm of offering the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. You know, this next generation sequencing has really been a game changer of Vivek, you know, more than anybody. Uh, and when we think of how to approach someone with an advanced cancer, it makes sense to try to understand that cancer, to try to expose its vulnerabilities. We have these tools available, multiple commercial and academic platforms to do this type of testing. Why isn't this being done for everyone with an advanced cancer? That's a great question. I think I st we still struggle to you know understand that. Let's take, for instance, lung cancer, which has become the post child for precision oncology in the last decade. We know that we have at least 10 different biomarker targets that are druggable, EGFR, ALK, BR, ERBB2, KERAS, MET, RET, ROS1, etc. And the list goes on. But there is a still legacy uh, testing of single gene testing being done in the community for the earliest discovered mutations like EGFR or ALK. So beyond the single gene test versus a comprehensive gene uh, you know, testing panel for lung cancer, the main challenges are we are unable to, you know, again, oncologists may not order this because we are unable to finally you know, find a safe, uh, a safe spot for getting a biopsy for testing. Again, this, uh, you know, in the recent past has, has be become overcome by what we call as liquid biopsy or uh, testing your blood for what we call as CFDNA markers, where we can test the genes uh, floating in the cancer cells, uh, you know, floating in the blood uh, from the cancer cells. Many times that there is not enough tumor tissue in the biopsy sample to have a biomarker testing done. And you know, unfortunately, even if you get the testing done, the test doesn't find any biomarkers in the cancer that a match drug is available with therapies. And another way, you know, the test identifies a matching therapy that would need to be used off-label and the insurance does not cover the cost. And then the test identifies a matching therapy that is being tested in a clinical trial that is not available close by. And then you reach the center where the trial is being done and you are not able to participate in the trial because you know, of eligibility criteria. Again, there are so many, so many, um, uh, you know, legacy uh, precepts that, that, that impact, uh, you know, patients not being sequenced, not only in lung cancer, across the board. Yeah, these targets really do change things quite a bit. And when we look at oncology overall, our field has changed dramatically in a relatively short period of time. A lot of these targets, you know, many of which you're involved in Vivek, are very rare. So we think of N-Track fusions, RET fusions, NRG1 fusions. And in the early days of, of developing these drugs, a lot of people questioned whether you could even do a trial in, in a, a subset that was so rare. Um, so we think about feasibility, just from your standpoint, from a drug development, from a program leadership standpoint, do you ever have any concerns in developing drugs for these rare, rare subtypes? Well, thank you, Stephen. I think that's a great question. 
So advances in biotechnology and next-gen sequencing have enabled us to assay human tissue and cells to a depth and resolution that was unprecedented and never possible before, redefining what we call as biomarker and how we define a disease. So this comes along with a shift of focus from the one-size-fits-all approach to a personalized approach, placing the drug development industry and everyone in the drug development space and all the stakeholders in a highly dynamic landscape having to navigate such disruptive trends. In response to this, innovative trial designs have been key to realizing biomarker-driven drug development. This is literally picking needles out of haystacks. Regulatory approvals of cancer genome panels increase availability of commercial sequencing panels and associated targeted therapies as broad personalized medicine to the clinic. Again, increase availability of sophisticated biotechnologies you know, by many, many commercial companies and academic medical centers have led to massive outflux of genomic data. So uh, it has, it's always a challenge to envision something upfront, but in my experience, for these rare cancers, when you want to pick needles in haystacks, if you have a trial, if you build the program, they will come. So all stakeholders in drug development should be conscious of and efficiently utilize this. Revamp the way industry approaches uh, drug development in this era of personalized medicine. You know, we are used to be thinking in silos, in one center, one drug, one paradigm. But we need to think about uh, as network sites, as key hubs where all these patients can be treated, identified first, and then treated and matched to the targeted therapy. So ultimately, again, my words are, if you build, they will come. Well said. And you, know, you mentioned the FDA. I think that's something we don't talk quite a, enough about. They've really adapted and sort of appreciate some of the barriers here. You know, an interesting development in the drug registration process have been so-called tumor agnostic approvals by the FDA. These are relatively new to oncology, and you've already been involved in a few of these. Can you explain what we mean by tumor agnostic and maybe some of the challenges that emerge with this pathway? Oh, absolutely. A tumor agnostic approach is uh, close to my art, and I would extend the tumor agnostic definition to be tumor agnostic and age agnostic. Uh, as you know, my background is both an adult and pediatric oncologist as well. So what is a tumor agnostic treatment? Tumor agnostic treatment is a drug treatment that is used to treat any kind of cancer, regardless of where it originated in the body or the type of tissue from which it developed. This specific type of treatment can be used when the tumor has a very specific molecular alteration that is targeted by the drug or predicts that the drug is likely to work. Most cancer treatment are developed to treat cancer that has developed in an organ-specific or tissue-specific manner like breast cancer, lung cancer, kidney cancer, prostate cancer. A tumor agnostic treatment treats any kind of cancer as long as the cancer has a specific underlying molecular aberration targeted by the drug. Tumor agnostic therapy represents a new way of thinking about how cancer is treated that is quite treatment, uh, quite different from how treatment plants have developed in the past. These treatment methods provide a way to treat a tumor based on its specific genetic makeup rather than its location in the body. The watershed moment happened in 2017 when pembrolizumab, which is an immunotherapy, was approved for a genomic biomarker, what we call as MSI high cancers or DMMR cancers. This represented the ultimate match or marriage of genomics and immunotherapy. 
Following this major sentinel watershed moment in tumor agnostic drug development and precision medicine space, in November 2018, a drug called laratrectinib, VTRAC V, you know, to, to target NTRAC fusions across all solid tumors, adult and pediatric solid tumors was approved. Following that, a year later, entrectinib was approved. Recently, we have tissue agnostic drug approvals for BRAF V600E and red fusion positive solid tumors. Again, these approvals and these two recent FDA approvals are being called a step forward in tumor agnostic, site agnostic, or histology agnostic drug development. But what does tumor agnostic mean and why it is important for people with cancer? It's important to know. With tumor agnostic treatment, testing the tumor genes or other molecular features can help the team, healthcare team, decide which treatments can be best for an individual with cancer, regardless of where the cancer is located or how it looks under the microscope. So molecular testing thus becomes an essential element of treatment planning. So this is a natural step forward in the development of personalized medicine or precision medicine for cancer treatment. So patients with cancer should talk with their oncologist whether testing for their tumor for gene alterations is appropriate. So when we are facing a challenge of not even testing the poster child of precision oncology, which is lung cancer, we are a long ways to do tumor agnostic, tissue agnostic treatment planning for patients across the board when molecular profiling is not being done across tumors. The main challenge of tumor agnostic therapies is getting the molecular testing done in these patients so that we can see who, which patients would benefit from these tissue agnostic therapies. Now, well said, and it really is, is quite a stray from our traditional path. And when we think of, of tumor agnostic approaches, there's a lot of appeal to it. But I guess not everything lends itself well to a tumor agnostic approval. When we think of pembrolizumab um, in certain circumstances, yes, absolutely, uh, sort of transcending tumor type. But other biomarkers like PDL1 expression, that seems to hold a little different context in some tumors than others. So not everything would be uh, tumor agnostic, right? Absolutely. Not every target is tumor. You know, I would say uh, not everything would lend itself to a tumor agnostic approach. but a tumor agnostic approach should be the starting point for treatments. You know, for instance, tumor agnostic approach uh, opens up drug approvals for rare biomarker diseases. You know, for instance, even pembrolizumab has two different tumor agnostic approvals. One is for MSI high cancers, mm -hmm. and another one is for tumor mutation burden greater than or equal to 10 cancers. Take, for instance, sarcoma. You know, before atezolizumab for alveolar subpart sarcoma, we didn't have any approvals for patients with sarcoma. Mm -hmm. So a tumor agnostic approval, even though the patients uh, were not enrolled in that trial, opens up uh, options for patients with sarcoma who harbor an MSI high cancer or who harbor a high tumor mutation burden. Again, this opens up an additional option for these patients with rare cancers. Yeah, agreed. And it's um it's interesting because to you know achieve a tumor agnostic approval, it's a different set of criteria, it's a different drug development program in terms of the registration process. Has the FDA been fairly easy to work with and in, in sort of really straying from the traditional pathway? Well, absolutely. I think here uh, we are building the flight uh, in flight. And you know we are learning from uh, the regulatory authorities, and we are also learning from each and every one of the tissue agnostic approvals. 
And as I said, we learned a lot from the first tissue agnostic approval in 2017 with pembrolizumab, wherein, uh, importantly, uh, we know that the regulatory authorities were open to getting us accelerated approval based on uh, for an immunotherapy with a genomic biomarker based on a single arm study across all solid tumors, and most importantly, based on real-world data. So again, uh, this was this this in itself was instructive in several ways that opened up the tissue agnostic space. With the second tissue agnostic approval with uh, laratrectinib, we found that this could be done tissue not only tissue agnostic but age agnostic as well. And you know, PRAF tissue agnostic approval was was challenging because, as we all know, uh, colorectal cancer uh, was an exception to BRAF inhibitor treatment. Although later it was found that we could add an EGFR inhibitor to the BRAF inhibitor uh, for colorectal cancer for, for responses. So for BRAF V600, uh, the tissue agnostic drug development pathway was the last because it was originally approved in melanoma, then in a rare disease called anaplastic uh, thyroid cancer, um, and then lung cancer, and then eventually uh, given the evidence, compelling evidence in multiple different tumor types, including tough to treat cholangiocarcinoma, low grade and high grade glioma that include glioblastomas. Eventually, uh, the BRAF uh, uh, combination, BRAF and MEK combination with dabrafenib and trematinib got the tissue agnostic approval. Again, uh, my uh, personal view is that we are still scratching the tip of the iceberg with tissue agnostic uh, targets and approvals. And I think you know several targets lend lend themselves to you know tissue agnostic uh, paradigm like ALK fusions, NRG mm -hmm. fusions, HER2, right? HER2 is emerging as a tissue agnostic target. Um, you know, upcoming uh, targets like FGFR2 are also you know coming out as tissue agnostic. So again, we are still learning a lot on tissue agnostic. I would say tissue agnostic would be. Uh, an add-on, a supplement to the conventional histology uh, focus paradigm. Yeah, I, I agree. I've been impressed by sort of the FDA's approach and, you know, that they're not sticking with dogma that we always need to randomize phase three because in, in some circumstances, it's just not possible to do a randomized phase three for some of these very rare alterations and, and maybe not appropriate. Um, so I'm glad that we've seen that adaptation. And, you know, you mentioned FGFR, uh, you know, this is a, a target you're also familiar with. In fact, when you look at, you know, your, your publication list, your resume there, that's a long string of hits there. Um, you know, every day in this early phase setting, you're working with brand new compounds. And, you know, from a, a safety and toxicity standpoint, we know sort of less about these drugs when we're, we're first getting used to them. Can you talk about how, you know, for, for, especially for our trainees, those thinking of getting into this field, How's your day-to-day -day in treating patients different, and, and how do you approach these visits? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. So important is, you know, trainees need to think about patient-centric drug development. I think involve the patients in every step of the way. Now, talking with prospective patients about enrollment in a clinical trial is not always easy. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it takes time uh, for, for someone to learn that. And you know, it's it's then once you start learning that that becomes an art and a science. We need to provide an empowering environment by inviting uh, patients and their families to to select you know who will attend this discussion. Increase the prospective uh, patient's ability to focus on the discussion by holding the meeting in a private clinic without interruptions. 
communicate respect and importance uh, to this meeting by acknowledging the trauma of diagnosis. Again, many times when patients are sent to early phase clinics, uh, patients have been told by their doctors that they are running out of options. So it, we need to have empathizing uh, meeting with emotional uh, reactions. We got to simplify this information as much as possible by avoiding medical jargon and a laundry list of medications and side effects. And again, it's important to summarize, important to repeat important points. And again, uh, you know, uh, ask open-ended questions. You know, have patients ask open-ended questions and avoid interrupting them. And importantly, you know, educate patients about how disease treatments have improved over time due to clinical research and participation of patients in clinical trials. And importantly, you know, we need to definitely avoid the recommendation of a clinical trial. Uh, we need to say um, that this is voluntary, you know, and, and ask open-ended question and have time, you know, have be present in the in the conversation with patients. And again, these are challenging. As you said, these are new drugs. And some many times we would not be uh, knowing the side effect profile. It's mainly from preclinical models. And it's important to really, really uh, have open-ended conversation with prospective participants and patients uh, who are seeking uh, for, for, for clinical trial discussions. Yeah, I like the way you, you mentioned that. And, you know, trials have changed so much in, in just a, a short period of time. You know, trials are critical for our field. It's, it's a lot of work for both the staff and for the patient. And while there's always these uncertainties with new drugs, the, the drug development process is very different now than it was in the 1970s. Like when we were in training, Vivek, you know, trials were, you know, sort of a, a little bit of a, a long shot, the, the primary purpose, maybe not to, to really uh, affect the cancer as much as to make sure a drug was safe. But now in the era of, you know, uh, medicinal chemistry, synthetic biology, a lot of cases, even in the first or second line setting, a trial is, is maybe the best option. You know, can you comment on, on how things have, have changed a little in the past couple of decades? Maybe the trials of 2023 are a little different from the trials of, of you know, 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, 20 years ago, we were in a dark room. And, you know, it was just a one-size-fits-all approach on, you know, trying uh, different drugs, different toxic compounds on patients to see for safety, not just for safety, but mainly for toxicity. And we used to call it maximum tolerated dose. In the last decade, as I mentioned earlier, and as we discussed, um, we have another important tool added on, genomics. So we've been using the light microscope to diagnose cancer for the last 50 to say, 70 years. Yeah. The light microscope was uh, invented in 1600. So all it can say is if this originated in the lung as a lung cancer, and then look into the microscope, do specific stains, and see if it's non-small cell lung cancer versus uh, small cell lung cancer. Now, in 2023, we have another important tool called molecular microscope, the next-gen sequencing microscope, genomics. We have beyond genomics, uh, we are still scratching with uh, our uh, efforts in genomics. Beyond genomics, we have you know, proteomics, microbiomics, immunoprofiling. Immuno we have so much going on. We are still scratching the surface in terms of how to molecularly profile and how to identify these molecular portraits uh, and how 
uh, these you know cancer cells cancer cells grow so it is important for patients to understand that we are working with new drugs again for patients who are coming to early phase clinical trials we need to make sure although we can talk to them about new drugs about the hope and hype of these new drugs it is important to improve the disclosure to increase in our potential participant understanding they need to develop trust in how we are thinking critically to advance the field i would say three things follow the sequence number 1 explain the disease number 2 describe the current best proven treatment number 3 present the option of clinical trial assure to the patient that potential participation has a good comprehension of each step before moving to the next one so break this open if possible you know into two sessions use the consent document as a communication tool provide copies of the con- in informed consent document explain at least three times that trial participation is voluntary explain the right to withdraw any time you know again we have a lot of randomized studies coming up use example to clarify randomization process and avoid potentially misleading disruptions and again use a diagram you know i'm i'm a major fan of drawing pictures i really like a white marker board in the office in the clinic to show how these drugs work discuss any potential you know conflicts of interest you may have as an investigator discuss all the benefits risk side effects and all the alternatives for the patient be prepared to give an answer if the prospective patient ask you personally if you would enroll on the trial because every time uh, if a patient or caregiver or any member of the family they will ask if this is your mom would you enroll them in the trial or how would you advise one of your family members to enroll on the trial be prepared to give an answer to that particular question yeah well said vivek i mean it, it takes a lot of time but what you're describing really is the proper shared decision making model that we need to employ and and you know i think it's the the right approach our field is dependent on on these trials to to really bring in new drugs and all the drugs that we use today that we're excited about were you know developed in clinical trials not that long ago uh with that being said sort of knowing that progress in oncology is linked to these trials you know what are the the barriers to clinical trial enrollment and trial conduct today you know from from a leadership standpoint absolutely i think uh, landscape of clinical trials are continuously evolving and you know we have a lot of barriers and challenges you know again uh, we can go by numbers but i think less than 5% of patients with cancer are enrolled in trials i think if we don't enroll patients and studies we cannot move the cancer needle and i would say break this down the biggest barriers to clinical trial enrollment into you know 10 different uh, areas i would say top 10 barriers to clinical trial enrollment number 1 is eligibility criteria in the clinical trials have strict eligibility criteria so we need to make sure that we work uh, with the sponsors to make sure that these uh, eligibility criteria are not so strict many times when sponsors you know and members designed clinical trials they may be you know uh, scientific they may not think about the real world patients we want to make sure that the clinical trials represent real world patients as much as possible again uh, that's one of the main major barriers to trial participation number 2 is awareness and education lack of awareness among patients physicians importantly physicians and healthcare providers about available clinical trials can be a significant barrier and number 3 geographic accessibility clinical trials 
are available in niche silo key hubs we need to make sure that clinical trials are available to patients in their own back, backyard many times patients uh, may have to travel long distances to participate in a trial every time it breaks my heart to tell a patient with glioblastoma or pancreatic cancer to move to a major academic center and spend their last 6 months of life there this can deter many many patients especially those with limited limited financial means or mobility issues number 4 time and financial constraints participating in a clinical trial require it's time consuming it's a full time job for the patient and the caregiver it may require frequent visits to the trial site financial constraints is huge again uh, many many patients are concerned about the financial costs associated with trial participation most important is five fear and mistrust some patients may be hesitant to participate in clinical trials they think that they are guinea pigs the physician or the investigator and the clinical trialist needs to make sure that the patient are the centerpiece of this they are not guinea pigs and you know patient have the right any time to voluntarily withdraw from the clinical trial number 6 burden on physician and sites running a clinical trial requires significant effort and resources from the healthcare provider team physicians and trial sites the administrative burden and complex protocols you know that are usually very thick may discourage many physicians of uh, you know actively practicing and caring for patients to referring patients uh, to clinical trials that ties into number 7 competition with standard of care in many cases there are effective standard of care treatments available there are some always some chemotherapy options available physicians and patients may be hesitant to consider a new drug as an alternative when some standard therapies are available number 8 regulatory process the regulatory approval process can be lengthy complicated to open a clinical trial is so much painful in many many centers which may delay the initiation of trials and thereby decrease the enthusiasm of even opening a trial number 9 inclusion of diverse populations again certain demographic groups such as ethnic minorities elderly population veterans young adults adolescents may be underrepresented leading to potential gaps in knowledge about how treatments may work for them that's a major barrier in enrollment of clinical trials the last but not the least is the paperwork and huge regulatory burden and the infrastructure for a clinical trial site again that's one of the most important centerpieces these are the biggest barriers to clinical trial enrollment and clinical trial conduct today wow that's a wonderful list for that i mean i think it, you you really hit the nail on the head there uh, when we talk about cost in a trial i think that's not really fleshed out enough you know uh, on a clinical trial the investigational drugs are you know generally provided without cost but the cost is really the time that you're coming in for extra visits the blood draws the biopsy uh, transportation taking time off of work all of these hidden costs that uh, maybe are not readily apparent but you know as you mentioned that's a, a major issue for a lot of patients right no absolutely i think you know as i mentioned earlier it's a full time job yeah. you know many patients especially uh, you know who are working full time and that that is most of the patients and their caregivers Mm-hmm. Uh, need to take off work to participate in clinical trials sometimes if they quit their job they won't have insurance to maintain participation in clinical trials so it's a catch 22 situation again these are the challenges that we face in 
uh, day in and day out to participate in clinical trials. Yeah, and the the diversity point is is a major one. And as you mentioned, a minority of of patients with cancer are treated on a clinical trial. Yet those trials define the standard of care for the next generation of of patients. And yet it doesn't really reflect our population in the U.S. Uh, we don't see the diversity of our country reflected in trial participation. And you know, part of it are are these sort of hidden biases where you know a lot of oncologists have been studies showing this. Oncologists may offer a trial to certain patients, but may not offer it to patients of a lower socioeconomic class, of a different ethnic minority, because of some assumptions they have, um, which really are, are faulty. And I think that takes a lot of introspection to identify those biases and, and really overcome those. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, marginalized racial and ethnic groups, women and historically disenfranchised population are substantially underrepresented in clinical trials. Despite increasing concern among policymakers, patient advocates, industry leaders, academic institution, again, broadly, the goals of increasing diversity clinical trial participation include, as you said, earning and building trust, promoting fairness, and generating biomedical knowledge. I think these three goals are each valuable on their own, and accomplishing one goal might result in progress towards another. Yeah. And that, that point you made, you know, the burden on, on sites, the regulatory burden, these trials are getting more and more complex. They require a tremendous amount of work. It's so much easier to just treat someone with standard of care. It's so much easier. But to enroll in a trial is much more worthwhile, better, you know, often for the patient and for the general good. Uh, but it, it is a, a huge burden. And many places are experiencing staff shortages, really, ever since the pandemic. It's been harder to, to find people. And you know, in your leadership position, I'm sure you're dealing with this a lot. But you know, what I what I try to tell you know my, my colleagues and trainees is, you know, there are very few conditions where we are completely satisfied with the standard of care. Um, very few. Um, and you know, there's always the opportunity for something better, and that's really where trials come in. Absolutely, you nailed it, Vivek. You, you've been involved in the development of so many practice changing drugs, so. Again, from a drug development standpoint, you know, when you're not in the clinic, you're in your office, when you're approached with a new drug, a first in human trial, what are you looking at to tell you that this drug eventually could be a winner, that this drug is worth that time, that investment? Thank you, Steve, for that question. I think that's a that's a multi-million, not a multi-billion dollar question. So, but, you know, again, I go with, uh, I'm, I'm a list person, I go with top five things. Uh, important is number one, a mechanism of action, right? Mechanism of action of the drug and preclinical data. Again, uh, go through the preclinical data, including the lab and animal studies, to for the mechanism of action of the agent's biological activity, potential efficacy, and safety profile, and how the drug is. You know, again, how do you design the PK studies? Uh, PK studies are pharmacokinetic studies. How the drug is absorbed, distributed, metabolized, and what and and pharmacodynamics how it affects the body. Number two is, uh, you know, toxicology studies, we call it a GLP studies, and manufacturing inequality, we, we, which we refer to as GMP studies. So GLP is a set of guidelines for conducting non-clinical safety studies under standardized and controlled conditions, and these have been defined. So the toxicity studies are essential to identify potential adverse events of the agents at various dose levels. So these studies aim to determine the what we call as MTD, maximum tolerated dose, and dose range for further human testing. And you know, data from acute, subacute, and chronic toxicity are also evaluated. 
Uh, together with this, we would also evaluate something called the GMP, uh, which refers to sta quality standards that's me that must be followed during the manufacturing of the investigational agent. Number three would be safety and toxicity profile. Again, I, I would take some time out uh, from emails, phone calls, and, and look into the cumulative toxicity data obtained from the GLP and the GMP uh, studies in help to understanding the safety profile of the agent. Again, for potential in a target organ uh, damage, potential dose limiting toxicities, and any safety concern that may influence the dosing and patient monitoring during the clinical trial. Number four uh, would be dose selection, right? Again, this is very important. Based on the toxicity data, we can determine the starting dose for the phase one study. The starting dose is often well below the maximum tolerated dose to ensure patient safety during the initial stages of human testing. And, and again, uh, personally, in the precision oncology era, we don't want to find the maximum tolerated dose but rather the recommended phase two dose or the optimal you know, biological dose. And in, in, in certain, certain immunotherapy drugs, we want to just uh, you know, look into receptor occupancy, saturation, et cetera. Most importantly, number five is regulatory approvals. You know, before conducting a first in human clinical trials, we need to make sure that we get approval from reg relevant regulatory authorities like the FDA or the EMA. The agencies, you know, review the preclinical data, toxicity studies, and all that I mentioned, like GLP, GMP studies, in detail to make sure that the basic minimum safety and, and, and clearance is, you know, provided to proceed with the trial. Again, ultimately, uh, you know, again, all these uh, aspects is, you know, what we look for in all the phase, first in human phase one study to ensure the safety of the participant and the ethical conduct of clinical trials. I think that what trainees should take out is is how much thought goes into it, how much intention they have to have. It, it takes a lot to open up a study. So you're only going to open up a study if you believe in the drug and you really need to, to take time to, to think through that. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. There's so much diligence that needs to go on in looking into the preclinical data, the tox data and, and the relevant regulatory approvals so that we can uh, select the right dose uh, from the get go. Yeah, we're not we're not opening every trial that we're offered. There's you know, most mostly not, and, and yeah, yeah, that, that takes a lot of experience. And I think those are the things that come through. I know you've done a lot of of training. You're the, the phase one training programs at MD Anderson. I mean, you've been a mentor to a lot of different oncologies that were interested in drug development. Do you have any advice for someone that's interested in this space that's currently in training? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that uh, question. One of the most important things I would say to young, uh, you know, you know, folks in in oncology, and I, I would consider myself uh, still young. I, I still have a long ways to go, yeah. just still scratching the surface. What we are doing, right? Known as a drop, unknown as an ocean. But importantly, uh, uh, again, top ten, right? I would go with top ten. Passion and purpose. Stay passionate about your work, and remember the profound impact it can have on patients' lives. Keep a clear sense of purpose and commitment to improving cancer treatment and patient outcomes. Number one, that's important. I think the rest of them can flow through once you have passion and purpose. And number two is oncology. The field of oncology is constantly evolving. New discoveries, breakthroughs occurring regularly. 
you need to stay abreast and updated on research advances attend conferences engage in co- meetings and that, that ties into three collaboration and networking and again as as the host of this podcast again dr steven lewis one of the you know experts in terms of building collaborations with clinicians researchers industry experts and networking can lead to valuable partnerships and access to resources that can accelerate the drug development efforts number 4 in a patient centric approach always keep the patient at the center of the work understand their needs and that is very very important so passion number 1 and number 4 the rest will flow through passion and purpose and patient centric approach the rest will flow you know flow through important as a drug developer to understand translational research also important to have regulatory knowledge important to have risk management knowledge again this will be you know number 5 number 6 would be uh, adaptability i think we need to be prepared to adapt and adopt new technologies evolving technologies methodologies and changing scientific paradigms and most importantly beyond all this from passion to purpose and patient centric approach we need to have resilience and perseverance it's emotionally taxing right drug development in oncology is emotionally taxing draining due to the nature of the disease we need to cultivate resilience and perseverance to stay committed to the goals despite the challenges again our failures are a lot successes are a few but we the success need to keep us going um so that we we are resilient and persevere on our goals one of the most important things is mentorship seek guidance and mentorship from experienced professionals in the field learn from those who have navigated similar paths can be va- learning you know this can be valuable in your own career development again the pandemic has opened up a large variety of possibilities of virtual mentorship sometimes mentors might not be at your same institution it's a match right so you can seek mentors from outside institutions from national leaders i think many of them can set aside time to talk to you oncology world is small i think you you can seek out to anybody in oncology who you think has uh, some experience in your field or, or who or who have who motivate you right who motivate you and and who wake you up in the morning you know to go to work so those are those are the sort of people you need to have as mentors you don't need to have like just one mentor you can have mentors sponsors and you can have uh, colleagues who are, who who you can you know have sounding board people hmm. again next is personal well-being again uh, i'm i i cannot talk about this but my better half dr aishwarya subaya who's a medical oncologist is a major major advocate of uh, health professional well-being and she leads our health professional well-being efforts here in this institution uh, it is important to maintain a healthy work life balance again none of us really understand the space of healthy work life balance but it is important to disconnect from electronics from the internet take some time off for yourself visit the national parks weekend go to long walks you know you know switch off your phone switch off your computer um you know if you are not on call switch off your pager uh, this can uh disconnect yourself and refresh your mind to to thinking um about about many other research opportunities innovation in a combined scientific excellence compassion for patient passion and purpose with innovation and and i i think these are some of the things that that come to my mind uh 
to young drug developers in the field of oncology. I can go on, but you know, for the sake of time, I'll stop here. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, I don't know how you do it, Vivek. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit from the inside, so I know I know it goes into sort of running a program, opening these trials, and just how much you've you've done. You're really one of the most productive oncologists out there. You've got a, a young family. Uh, you know, your wife also a very busy academic oncologist. Uh, like, how, how do you do it? Any tips on on time management and just being so consistently productive? Oh, that's generous uh, thing. I think you need to ask my wife that question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still am struggling. I have the guilt that I'm not productive enough. But you know, I, I again uh, to answer some management tips and strategies for young trainees. Important to prioritize tasks. Start each day by identifying the most important tasks that need to be accomplished. Block times, time blocking, allocate specific blocks of time for different tasks. You know, only you know when you're productive. You know, sometimes you're productive in the morning. Some people are productive at night. You know those productive times. So block those times and make sure that your research work, paperwork and all that, uh, you, you set aside time for those. You know, certain things that for, for some personal tasks and paperwork, you don't need to be fully, fully, fully awake. So again, get, uh, you know, stick to the schedule as much as possible to avoid distractions. Use technology wisely. Again, uh, EHRs, medical apps, communication platforms, social media uh, can be dis distractive at the same time can save time and enhance patient care. One of the important things is delegate whenever possible. As an oncologist, you may have a team of healthcare professionals working with you. Delegate uh, important things. Uh, delegate important things and develop trust with your colleagues and, and, and the staff. Important to set realistic goals. Establish achievable. Uh, what is achievable daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, you know, three years, five years goals. Break down larger projects into smaller tasks. Last but not the least, learn to say no. While it's essential to be helpful, saying yes to every request, uh, because many of the centers, trial centers, can be an unlimited all-you-can-eat buffet of projects. Mm. Say say no uh, if, you, if you cannot. Politely decline tasks or projects that don't align, align with your goals, priorities, uh, or may exceed your capability. Again, that ties in, right? Maintain a work-life balance, prioritize your well-being and personal a life alongside your professional commitments, a balanced approach ensures sustained productivity and prevents our, you know, burnout. I'm, I'm learning a lot here. <laughs> so, um, but we're, we're, we're unfortunately running out of time here. Uh, before, before we go, I think the audience would really love to just hear a little bit about how you got to where you are. You mentioned that you've trained in both the adult and pediatric populations. How did you end up focusing on, on drug development on early phase clinical trials? Oh, thank you so much for the question. Uh, again, I trained in MedPeds residency uh, in Cleveland and then moved on to MD Anderson to do a combined internal medicine and pediatric fellowship there. During my fellowship at MD Anderson, which was an amazing experience, you know, to train at the best cancer center in, in the U.S. or the world on multiple levels, I met three people who really inspired my interest in drug development and clinical trials. The renowned Dr. Emil J. Freireich, right? Uh, number one, again, he, as you all know, he's, a, he's known as one of the godfathers, uh, the founding fathers of oncology clinical trial. 
Dr. Friedrich's mentee, Dr. Russell Kurzrak. And, you know, when she, she was building the phase one program and I started my fellowship there. And Dr. Peter, Pete Anderson, who's also a med-peds physician like me, who's now at Cleveland Clinic working in sarcoma. Uh, you know, it was nice to have someone bounce off ideas and he was really motivating for me to do uh, research in academia. And Dr. Kurzrak had a major influence in my career at the time when she was forming this unique department for, for treating histology agnostic tumors in the context of clinical trial. And as far as Dr. Freireich, I got to know him really well because I was the administrative fellow uh, running the graduate medical education lecture series, and he was a chair. So that uh, GME series, we invite famous speakers from who's who in oncology and interact with them behind the scenes. So before the talks, Dr. Freireich, who was sort of grandfather figure to me, inspired me to focus on the thought process towards a career in drug development and clinical trials. Later, uh, you know, fast forward, like maybe five, seven years, I became the chair of the same GME office that Dr. Freireich was, cha was chairing. And that was a special privilege. And Dr. Freireich used to call me to discuss novel therapeutic advances. Alternatively, I used to share my uh, research and clinical work with him. You know, for example, the research I led in one of the most lethal cancers, anaplastic thyroid cancer, led to the ap approval of a BRAF and MEK combination, dabrafenib and tremetinib, uh, by USFDA. Up until then, we had no approved drugs for that agent. When I shared that research with Dr. Friedrich, he was impressed by the work, but he said an FDA approval is just the beginning of research. Mm. And he said, I, you are extending the lives of these patients, and now you have to strive for a cure. He truly motivated me to push the limits of research. And that's how advances are made. Again, I just mentioned these three people, but there are so many people in our faculty at, at MD Anderson during my fellowship who really motivated me and inspired me to you know, be where I am and do what I do. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it was a phenomenal training experience at MD Anderson, uh, you know, a unique privilege uh, of my life. Wow. Well, there's, there's so much more I want to go over, but we are out of time. So uh, with that, I'm, I'm going to close this episode. I, I want to thank you, Vivek, uh, for, for your time and certainly for all your contributions to the field. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure and honor uh, chatting to the IAC, IASLC Lung Cancer you know, Considered Podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, no, the pleasure is all ours. And I really appreciate that. And you know, with that, we'll, we'll conclude this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. To our listeners, thank you for listening, and we hope that you'll tune in on the first and third Tuesday of every month to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 